As the tongues of fire settled on the apostles on the day of Pentecost, and a series of amazing events followed, one might have expected the early church to be caught up in the signs and wonders of the day. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. Instead of focusing on the miracles of Pentecost, we find the early church hungry for the teaching of the Word and the fellowship of other believers. Listen now as Dr. Boyce examines the characteristics of a Spirit-filled church, both then and now, and the qualities of a Spirit-filled believer. We're coming in our study of the book of Acts to the end of the second chapter to a great paragraph that describes the early church. I've called it a model church. I don't mean by that title that the early church was perfect. A few chapters further on in Acts, we're going to find that it was far from perfect. It had hypocrites within it, as we do in our churches. It had doctrinal errors. We find that out soon enough, as we do in our churches. It certainly had sinful human beings of all types. And yet it was a model church in many respects, and it's in that sense that it's described for us in these verses that tell what happened to the church, how it was established, and how it functioned in those remarkable days following Pentecost. The success of the church, as we begin to discover, was found in the fact that all of the believers were doing the work of the ministry. This is presented to us as a model. It's why I use the word. So when we read, as we do, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer, what we find there is a pattern for what our church should be. And we need to look at it in that light. Now, we look at the first phrase. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the apostolic teaching. It's interesting, isn't it, that the first thing Luke says when he begins to describe this church is that it was a learning, studying church. A lot of other things he could have said about it, and as we go on to read about it, we find that there are other things he does say. He could have stressed, for example, that it was a joyful church, because certainly it was. He could have stressed that it was an expanding, active, vibrant church, and indeed it was. The first thing he talks about is the teaching. And he stresses that in these early days, and in spite of the fact that something so new and so tremendous had happened, and they had just gone through this tremendous experience of Pentecost, that in spite of all those experiences that might have caused them to focus on the experiences, instead of that, they, they first of all devoted themselves to the teaching. I suggest, and do so very strongly, that that is always the mark of a spirit-filled church. I don't say that God can't do other things, sometimes of a miraculous nature. We're going to look at that again in a moment. But the one thing that is always characteristic of a church, if it really is spirit-filled and going on with the Lord, is that it studies the apostolic teaching. It is a learning church that grounds all of its experience and tests that experience in the Bible, the Word of God. It's also interesting that it's described as the apostles' teaching. The apostles are those that were specifically chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ to authenticate, to speak of his ministry and to explain it. He said to them 
in those last discourses that are recorded in John's Gospel, that after he was gone, he would send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would come upon them in such a way that he would bring to their remembrance all the things that he had taught, all of the truth concerning his ministry. And of course, that is exactly what they did. If somebody had said, well, uh, how do we know that those particular men were the apostles of Jesus Christ and spoke with his authority. The answer to that is in this, this matter of the wonders and signs and miracles. It's mentioned here, verse 43, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Now you see, I, I don't think you have to conclude from that that wonders and signs were in no case done by anyone else. It doesn't say that may have been. But what it does say is that they were done by the apostles. And the reason it says that they were done by the apostles is that the chief reason the miracles and signs were given was to authenticate them as Christ's messengers. You find exactly the same thing in 2 Corinthians 12th chapter, verse 12. Paul is speaking and he says to them, the signs of an apostle were done among you, namely wonders and signs and miracles. Those things were given by God so that those who looked on could say, these men are appointed by God. God's blessing rests upon them. What they do, they do in God's name. So when they spoke and said, Jesus Christ said so-and-so, and and Jesus Christ did so-and-so, people could receive that as an authentic interpretation of his life, teachings, and ministry. Now, that's what they studied. They studied that teaching of the apostles and tested it against the Old Testament. When it came time to to choose the books and and collect the books that were to become our New Testament, the criterion by which that was done was whether they came from the apostles or bore the apostolic imprimatur, that is, the apostolic blessing and authentication. And so that's how we have our New Testament. The fact that we have it is a fulfillment of what Jesus Christ said he would do. And he did it, and now we have it. And in order for us to copy the New Testament church at this point, we are to be a church that studies this book. This is where the teaching, the authentic teaching of Christianity, blessed by the Lord Jesus Christ, is to be found. So let's put that in terms that are easy to understand. A Spirit-filled church is going to be a Bible-studying church. Those two things always go together. Now, what is true of the church is true of individuals also. If you're spirit-filled, you'll be drawn to this book. And if you're not drawn to this book, if you don't really want to study it, if you say, well, you know, I I, I look at the Bible from time to time and it seems rather boring to me, it never, never really does seem to do very much to me, you ought to question in your heart whether you're really born again, or, or even if you're born again, you're, you certainly are not filled by the Spirit, because the Holy Spirit who bears witness to Jesus Christ as his chief task, inevitably draws the people of God to Jesus Christ through the pages of Scripture. Now, I can put that in very practical terms. It means, among other things, that uh, evangelical, spirit-filled, Bible-oriented churches should have many, many opportunities for people to study the Bible. One of the ways that's done is through the preaching. That's what the preacher's chief task is to expound the Word of God, to study it, and then to teach it. But that's not the only way that happens. It happens in classes. We divide up in order to focus on different things. And perhaps above all, it happens in home Bible studies. We're going to see as we look at this that the, the 
people in the early days here worshipped in their homes. I'm sure that meant that they studied the Bible in their homes. We would have been there. If we had been there, we would have said, well, they're having home Bible studies. They might not have been exactly like ours. They might have done other things. I'm sure they did. But they studied the Bible in their homes. So that's the first thing. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That is, they were students of the Word of God. Now, the second thing is fellowship. John R.W. Stott, who writes on this at one point, says that fellowship was born at Pentecost. And that's because fellowship means participation in God. The uh, Apostle John, in his first letter, when he comes to write about it, says, we have fellowship with one another, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That word in the Greek koinonia that we translate fellowship means participation in. You see, these early Christians all participated in the fellowship because, by definition, they had all participated in God and Jesus Christ. They were one with him. They, they had this, this common experience of Christ and trust in him to share. And because they were in Christ and participated in God, they quite naturally participated and shared with one another. The two always go together, you know. That's why John said in the verse I quoted a moment ago, our, our, our fellowship is with one another and our fellowship is with the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people have said, you see, the stronger your vertical fellowship is, the stronger your horizontal fellowship will be. If you find yourself out of fellowship with God, well, then you begin uh, to find yourself out of fellowship with other Christians. You say, well, you know, I don't really like to be with them very much, uh, full of hypocrites and, and so on, and you, you begin to drift off. But uh, if you're close to God, you inevitably will find yourself being drawn close to other Christians. And it works the other way. If you hang around with other Christians, if, if you share with them, then uh, that fellowship will also draw you close to the Father. And here you see the early Christians who were so aware of the reality of God who had made himself so powerful in their midst through Pentecost. They were drawn to one another in this fellowship. I want you to see one other thing about the fellowship. When we talk about our participation in God, we're talking about a sharing in. I want you to notice that it's not only a sharing in, but it's also a sharing out. Because these Christians who so enjoyed their fellowship inevitably shared what they had with one another and were to think with those who were in need even outside the Christian fellowship as well. Now, when they shared these goods, some people have said, well... There you have a biblical endorsement of communism. Let me point out that it's not communism. Uh, communism is certainly a sharing of goods, but it's a sharing of goods on the philosophical principle that uh, no one can possess anything. And that is nobody but the state and those who are officials of the state. Everything has to be held in common because nobody really holds anything at all. That is not the teaching of the Bible. Uh, even apart from the religious dimensions of communism, communism denying existence of God and so forth. That's not what the Bible teaches. Later on, two chapters further in chapter 5, you have the story of Ananias and Sapphira who uh, sold a piece of property and kept part of the proceeds and then brought the rest and gave it to the apostles and said, here, 
we've sold our property and we're giving it all to the Lord. They were judged by God. They were struck dead for their deception. But they were not struck dead because they didn't give up everything. It's because they pretended that they were giving up everything, when as a matter of fact, they hadn't. Peter, who presided on this occasion, made it very clear when he responded to them. He said, why, you had the property. Wasn't it your own? Nobody was requiring you to sell it. And when you did sell it, you had the proceeds. Weren't the proceeds your own? Nobody was requiring you to give the proceeds to the church. And so if they did it, they did it willingly. And and in an indirect way, the comment of Peter endorses the right of private property. So this sort of thing that went on here in the early church, this generosity, this sharing of possessions, was not communistic in, in any way. Let me point out that it wasn't socialism either. Socialism is also a a kind of sharing, but it's a sharing that is enforced by the state. Socialism doesn't deny the right of private property. It just denies you the right to have too much of it in the judgment of somebody else. They shared their things not because they denied the right of private property or not because they were forced to share their things, but for a far better reason. God had been generous with them. And so because God had been generous with them, they were determined to be generous with one another. You see, that's what keeps us on the hook. Sometimes when we come to something like this and we say, well, you know, they weren't forced to do that, and later on we find the right of private property, we say, well, you know, that that gives us an excuse to keep everything for ourselves. And yet it doesn't, you see. Oh, it's true, you're, you're not forced to do it. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've learned from him, And you know that uh, man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. You have learned, because you've learned it from Jesus Christ, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. You have learned that the standard that's set before us is not the standard of being served, but serving. So our obligation is to use what we have for the good of others, which is what the early church did. Well, we try to do that here. We certainly do it through our giving. We do it through the various social service ministries that we've developed. Some of them are explicit, ministries like Acts, people give to and support, and from which ministry is made to the very needy in the immediate neighborhood. We do it in part through our missions program because many of the things we support are are social action type programs. We certainly try to Uh, support groups that are ministering in the city in a variety of ways. Uh, All these things are expressions of it, and it's very important that we have those expressions, organized ways of trying to meet the needs of people. And yet, you see, it also comes down to us individually, because we're told that if somebody says to you, I have a need, and you say to them, James is the one who develops this, if you say to them, well, God bless you, brother, go ahead, Uh, hope everything will be all right, I'll certainly pray for you. James says, where's the love of Jesus Christ in you. You see, we're failing to exert generosity growing from our fellowship at that point. Well, there's a third mark of the church, and that is formal worship. We see it in several ways here, certainly in the phrase, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. This word, breaking of bread, stands, it's shorthand for the communion service. Breaking of bread doesn't mention the wine, but that's implied. And prayer, of course, is something that we can do individually or at different times, but it's significant that in the Greek text here, it's not 
reflected for us in the English, but in the Greek text, the definite article occurs before the word prayer. It actually says, to the prayers. So you have to these. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. That's a, a reference to something official, something formal, some kind of formalized worship as the people got together and together praised God. You also find a rather formal setting for it in verse 46. Every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. The temple courts probably refer to the courtyard of the Gentiles, and those who have studied this say that that was a very large place. It could accommodate on feast days when everybody packed into it, perhaps about 200,000 people. That's a large crowd. It was probably the only place in Jerusalem that you could get a very large crowd together. It may very well be where Pentecost took place, or at least the outflowing of Pentecost after the Holy Spirit had first come in the upper room, because they came down into the streets of the city. They began to talk. A large crowd was gathered together, and from that large crowd, 3,000 believed and were saved. I don't know how large the crowd would have been that they would have spoken to in order to have a response like that, but it probably would have been a very large crowd. 30,000 people, 40,000 people, I don't know, large crowd. And probably the only place that large group of people could meet would have been the temple courts. So there's a certain sense in which God inaugurated the church in that formal setting. And as we read this, it's natural to think that on set occasions they return to that place where they could all meet together and formally enjoy the worship of God as they broke bread together and entered into the prayers or formal worship. And yet I want you to see something else too. Not only did they worship in a formal setting, they worshiped informally as well. That's why the next verse goes on to say they broke bread in their homes. That's a deliberate repetition, you see. Up above, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, and there's mention of the temple court, but it goes on to say they broke bread in their homes. I think that means they did both. They had formal worship and they had informal worship. You say, well, what did they sing when they got together in the temple court? I suppose they sang all the great Presbyterian hymns. What did they sing when they met together in their homes? I suppose they got out their guitars and began to sing the kind of choruses that the various youth groups have taught us. I would be happier, I suppose, in the temple courts, but I don't mind singing with guitars. And at any rate, they didn't mind that either. So we see them to a studying church, devoting themselves to the apostolic teaching. We see them engaging in fellowship. We see formal worship, and we see informal worship. There's one other thing I want you to see. They were a witnessing church. That is, they were engaged in evangelism. That's why we find, as we get toward the end of this paragraph, that the Lord is adding to their number daily those who were being saved. This doesn't say specifically that they were out witnessing And we know that the way God reaches people is through the spoken word. We know that when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, what happened immediately is that they began to speak about Jesus. And if we find, as we do here at the end of the second chapter, that the Lord is adding to their number daily those who are being saved, it must be because they were out speaking of Jesus. Indeed, how could they do otherwise? They had experienced something wonderful. They had witnessed the coming of God's own Son. They had been present in Jerusalem when he had been taken by wicked hands and was killed as he died on the cross for their sin. They had men among them who were witnesses of the resurrection. And now they had that great message to share with other people. 
And yet, as they shared it, you see, they didn't make the mistake of saying, as some people do, well, we're the ones that are bringing in the kingdom. We're the ones who are adding to the church. This is all being accomplished by our power. They knew perfectly well that they were only vehicles, channels for what God was doing, only means to the end that God himself had determined. And so they said, the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. It's always both, you see. God works through us, and so we must do it. If we don't do it, it doesn't happen. But when we do it and it does happen, it happens because the Lord is doing it. That sounds to many people like a contradiction, but it's not a contradiction. It's good biblical theology. It's the way God works. I want you to see, too, that not only was God saving people, he was also adding them to the church. The two always go together. Sometimes we say, well, let's get out and save them one by one, and then we let them go off and do their thing. That isn't the way it happens when God is at work. When you are brought to the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not brought to him individualistically. You're brought to him individually. You have to believe yourself. You come one at a time. But when you come, you come into the company of God's people. So Christianity is never individualistic. So he he saved them, but he, he added them to the number of the church, not just individuals, but the church grew. And the third thing I want you to see about that is that not only did God do it, and not only did he add them to the church at the same time he was saving them as individuals, he, he did it daily. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I yearn for that, don't you? We'd have reports day by day of those who are coming to find the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. I mentioned a study John Stott did some years ago, and he made one very interesting point, which I've always remembered, a point he made in conclusion. He said, notice all these marks of the church, the teaching, the fellowship, the worship, and the evangelism, he said, notice that all of them have to do with relationships. Teaching had to do with their relationship to the apostles, they submitted themselves to the doctrine that these men were making known. Fellowship, that described their relationship to one another. Worship, that described their relationships to God. And evangelism, that described their relationships to the world beyond. You know, the world doesn't always know what it needs. It doesn't even know what it really wants. But what it needs and what it really wants is that, relationships. Relationships among people, those within, those without, relationships to authority, and above all, relationships to God himself from whom all things come. Was this a model church? Yes. Yes, in spite of all its faults, I think it was. Let us pray. Our Father, bless these truths that we've been studying tonight. We confess that as we study something like this, we're increasingly conscious of the ways in which our own worship and fellowship and study fall short of the ideal. And yet these are the areas in which we would grow and learn and develop, and this is the kind of church we would be. Our Father, bless us by helping us to be that by the same power, the same Holy Spirit that worked in these early Christians to save many and to glorify Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.
You're listening to the Bible Study Hour featuring the teaching of Dr. James Boyce. What is the church? Perhaps a better question might be, what isn't the church? Find out more in our free CD offer entitled, What is the Church? by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Dr. Barnhouse explains that the church is not a building or a denomination, but a living body of believers. Today's free offer is our way of saying thanks for listening. Give us a call at 1-800-488-1888, and we'll be happy to send you a CD copy of What is the Church? That number again is 1-800-488-1888. The Spirit-filled believer seeks to willingly use his resources to further the kingdom of God. One powerful way of doing so is to support Dr. Boyce's Spirit-filled study of God's Word through your prayers and gifts. You can make a donation by visiting our website at thebiblestudyhour.org. You could choose to call us directly at 1-800-488-1888 or our mailing address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. Thank you for your faithful support of this ministry. Reformation 21 and A Place for Truth are websites of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, proclaiming biblical doctrine to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. Find blogs, articles, and podcasts from today's most influential Reformed thinkers. Connect to it all from thebiblestudyhour.org. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening in. A lame beggar sits at the temple gate where worshipers must pass by. But when he calls to Peter and John, pleading for a contribution to his cause, he receives a gift he didn't expect. Join Dr. James Boyce as he investigates Peter's first miracle and the sermon that followed. That's next time on The Bible Study Hour, preparing you to think and act biblically. Biblically.